right, welcome to the Brew Theology Podcast. This is Ryan. I am drinking a cranberry gose from Grandma's House Brewery on South Broadway. If you're in Denver, by the way, or hey, you just live in Denver, go to uh, Grandma's House on, we're going to be there February 22nd with Dr. David Bouchard. He's going to be talking about evangelicalism. Interestingly enough, some of us in this room have a little history in that, but we're going to not going to talk about that tonight because tonight we have Dr. Pam Eisenbaum back on the podcast. Some of y'all are thinking right now, didn't they just have her? Yes, well, we did. Yes, but Pam's so great, and we didn't even get to talk about Paul and how he was not a Christian, so tonight we're going to talk about that. I'm in the room right now with Jeff, Christina, Janelle, and Dan. Dan, you have an announcement to make. My wife is pregnant. hey <laughs> Now the whole world knows. And the kid's mine. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to be a dad. Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, just so y'all know, too. So uh, these are these are friends. We hang out at the pub every week, and you can do the same thing. Go to brewtheology.org. Your community can partner, and you can be a local chapter, wherever, even in Iowa or Ohio. Why do, why did I just, I did that to Iowans and Ohioans right there. I just sort of, yeah. But I'm just saying, like, if you're in Iowa, you can still do this as if they can't do this. That was very judgmental of me. I'm they from can Texas. Do this. They might want to do it with tea and coffee, but they can do this. Yeah. So this is a microcosm of what we do every Thursday night. We have uh, about, I don't know, five, six groups, seven to 10 people. And Pam spoke to about 50 people the other night at Blue Moon Brewery in Rhino. So we're going to get down to Paul, because if you haven't heard episodes 64, 5 and 6, 64, 65, 66, three parts on the Bible, go back and do, stop this episode, go back there, do that now. And so then you get the intro on Pam. We'll so wait. we'll wait for them to, to go and listen and then come <laughs> we, back. We're going to gonna stop right now yeah. for three hours. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. And right now the Spurs, yeah. uh, the Spurs are playing the nuggets right now. So Pam and I are very excited about that because the state of the union address is on and we're not watching that, but the Spurs game is on in the background. So go yeah. Spurs, go. All right, Pam, good to have you back. Thanks. It's good to be back. So, you know, you're a Jewish New Testament scholar. We talked about in the last podcast about what got you into the New Testament, but why specifically is Paul such a big deal, even though I know he's written a lot of the books of the New Testament, but for you specifically to say, you've done more studies on Paul than I would assume other letters. Yes, yes. Um, so Paul's sort of been my thing, at least for a big part of my career, um, and I really love Paul. Maybe I should just say that um, to start because people tend do tend to feel strongly about Paul, I find, either most people, either really liking Paul or really disliking Paul. Um, but I really got interested in scholarship on Paul as a result of teaching seminary students. And when I'd prepare, so now picture me a lot younger spunkier, more energetic. And I used to, to prepare for class, I would read the text in Greek. You were teasing me earlier, but I would just so I kind of, you know, and, and when I would do the Pauline material, like if we're going to talk about Romans that day, I'd read in the case of Romans, I wouldn't read all the way through it, but I'd read a good chunk of it. And I really became frustrated with the NRSV translation. Like it was really not good. And all translations make decisions and there's different ways. But so I started making my own translations for the students um, because I realized they couldn't even understand different ways of looking at Paul for me because the text they looked at didn't 
even lend itself to be interpreted that way. So I began translating Paul and then working on how to teach students Paul. And Paul can also be challenging. And I just found it really, really interesting. And that combined with some of my forebears, colleagues and forebears who are already talking about really radical things with Paul. So most Christians and Westerners come to the text, any Pauline text, with a a theological underlying assumption uh, before they even get to the first, whether it's Greek or English, it doesn't matter because it's already there. So that basically that Judaism is this flawed religion and that you say that the portrait of Paul that emerges from this narrative in Acts, it differs noticeably from the image that Paul projects of himself in his letters. But for whatever reason, regardless if you're reading Acts or just these undisputed letters that we'll get to, um, we already, we are, we're already coming to the text with these assumptions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that a question? It's, it, well, it's, <laughs> it's, it's kind of a question, but I, 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 I'm ha- so part of, part of your work within this is to get to, to really deconstruct that image. Yes. Yes. And it does require sort of deconstruct is the right word, uh, even though there are folks who can bristle at that, but sort of defamiliarizing yourself, um, which is what people who study things do anyway, right? A scientist doesn't look, I don't know, at a rose the way I do gardening if they're trying to study it to distill perfume from it. There's way you have to look at it in an analytical way. So, so there is the work of defamiliarizing, which is partly why I started making my own translations. So students could read it and then they're like, this isn't the same. (laughs) So with, uh, kind of the NRSV, at least at my seminary was the epitome of good translation. It is. is. What, um, can you give a, like one specific example of where you feel like it doesn't really represent him well? Right. Um, I think, Um, Well, I mentioned the verse, and I'll just say this on this podcast now, too, because it's kind of a personal um, mission of mine. In Romans 11, 28, where Paul says, um, well, the way it reads in the NRSV is, the Jews are the enemies of God. And then there's a little note on the, if you're looking at a printed NRSV, where it says the words of God are not in the Greek. <laughs> okay, so they, they now, and the NRSV translators are very conservative. For them to add, th- those words aren't like smoothing out something else. There's no, there's no object of the word enemies in that sentence. It just says they're enemies, right? And then the second half of the verse says, but they're beloved of God, okay? So, so they're inferring, I guess, from a later part of the verse. But when you say that, it connotes all sorts of things about Paul's attitude toward Jews, Judaism. That that's something Paul would say. And I just think it's just not even something that would come out of his mouth. Um, and so even when he was mad, he could, he could hurl insults at people. But that's a pretty serious one. Um, so I don't think he would have said that. So that's one. Let me take another um, I don't know if we're going to talk about the justification by yes. faith and faith of Christ and that sort of stuff, but um, the choice of preposition there is so rooted in Reformation theology um, that I'm sure that if it were any other two words, and hang on, folks, if you have no idea what we're talking about, we'll come back, I think, to explaining that, um, they never would have rendered it 
faith in Christ. They would have rendered it faith of Christ. So, in fact, uh, in Romans 4, uh, the phrase, the same phrase uh, appears, only it's Abraham instead of Christ. They don't say faith in Abraham. Of course not. They're talking about the faith of Abraham. Um, the, fra- the phrase, um, the righteousness of God, in Greek, same construction. We, we never say righteousness sort of in God. We're, we, right. you know, so, so, and all those are, so the reason for that has to do with Reformation theology. Yeah. I could really, it, it's, you know, everybody should learn Greek. If you're listening out there, you should learn Greek. Romans 4.1, I have a completely different translation of than what you'd find in the NRSV. Now, what about the other translations, like the NIV, CEV, like, are they just as screwed yes. up? Yes, yes. And there's differences. And, and by the way, I, you know, I don't want to so rail on them that all these people who've given a lot of thought to making translations are just, you know, idiots. I just think that every translation has its slant and assumptions. I, I do too with mine, right? So, but what I noticed is Christian theology affects English translation of Paul's letters more than, say, when they're translating the Gospels. And the reason for that is so many of the pillars of Christian theology are not in Jesus' teaching. They're in Paul, right? Baptism, the Eucharist, um, the significance of the resurrection, the meaning of death is atonement. Jesus didn't explain all these things, (laughs) right? So his teachings aren't of that nature, so, you know, Paul is kind of more influential. And so if you, if you change certain words or certain phrases and that connotes a whole different theology, it, it, it sounds either like, Paul, it sounds wrong or it's just actually even unimaginable. What you were referring to in Romans 11, what would be, in your mind, a more... Um, faithful rendering of that passage. I think it helps if you link it to the verses coming just before it and just after it. But I think to put it in paraphrase, because I'm not, I have to be looking at it exactly if I were like making an official translation. But I think all Paul means is that they oppose him. They're like enemies of his mission, but they're still beloved of God. I think that's all he means. Um, But um, so I don't think it's a big stretch. In fact, I was giving a lecture on Paul in, um, the Netherlands recently, and I just, it wasn't on this topic at all, but I just somehow, I did the same thing. You know what really pisses me off? 1128 in the NRSV, and what is it in, in Dutch? It also had of God in Dutch. And so, and there were other, this was at a university to a group of scholars, and they all agreed with me that we should take those words out of our translations. <laughs> They're completely unnecessary. They don't make sense of it. And it's just a certain bias. It's just a certain assumption. Mm-hmm. Because in Romans 9 to 11, Paul is talking about God's attitude toward Israel. And the traditional reading there is that what Paul's trying to say is um, Israel, Israel, of, you know, the Israel has been supplanted by Israel, the church. The church is Israel now. It's rejected as people. So um, 
Romans, the end of chapter 11, is seen to be the culmination of that. So to say it makes sense that Paul would call them the enemies of God. You see, once you're sort of in that whole paradigm, it doesn't seem crazy. So when you choose to dissect Paul, um, you do you read Acts and you respect that, but yet you choose to look at these undisputed Pauline texts and you, you kind of leave Acts off a bit. So you talk about the, the images within Acts versus the, the images that are within the writings. So mm-hmm. can you just explain some of those differences for people? Some people might think, well, it's the same Paul all the way through, mm-hmm. but you say it's not. Yeah, it's not. Well, so I so there's lots of overlap. Whoever writes the book of Acts, um, knows lots of stuff about Paul. And uh, scholars debate whether the person who wrote Acts knows Paul's letters. That's an open question. But in any case, he knows lots of traditions. Um, So there are certain historical events that are corroborated between Acts and Paul's letters, like that he had this rather ugly meeting well, that he has this sort of conference in Jerusalem with the other apostles. That story, Paul refers to it in um, Galatians, and it's told in Acts 15 as well. But there are certain ways that Acts describes Paul that are contradictory to the way Paul describes himself. Most notably, in Acts, Paul always Paul preaches to Jews. He, you know, sort of what happens first is Paul's traveling around. He, he blows into town. He finds um, the local Jews, the local synagogue. He starts preaching, gets everybody up in arms, and they throw him out. And it's only sort of kind of by accident that he starts talking to non-Jews. And this pattern happens over and over and over again um, with Jews. Paul says it was never his mission to preach to Jews. Now, it has occurred to me, you know, people said to me, what would you find? Let's take a modern analogy. What would you trust more? Donald Trump's autobiography and his description of, you know, whatever, and uh, Michael Wolff's description of Trump, right? Generally, historians, though, we, we know that people portray themselves in certain ways because they have their own agenda, it has occurred to me that maybe Paul did preach to Jews and it he was a failed preacher and he really didn't want to announce that to the world, so he didn't talk about it. That is possible, I suppose. That is possible. But I don't think that's true because I think Paul was, you know, has a rich Jewish identity as a Pharisee and is immersed in that and he could have been persuasive with Jews too. Um so I think that he under, he thinks he's called by God in this prophetic way to speak to Gentiles and that that is his mission. He's not, he's not even called an apostle in Acts. He's never portrayed as writing letters in Acts. I mean, that kind of is his thing, right? Doesn't write any letters. Um, uh, preaches to Jews, only preaches to Gentiles when he gets kicked out of a synagogue. Um, in the book, I talk about sort of... Um, sort of the standards of writing history in antiquity, and the standards are different. So it's not like I just think Acts is just um, trying to deceive people. That's not what that author is doing at all. Um, That author's trying to, in in a world in which you can't record things literally, (laughs) um, is trying to capture um, the upshot of things, right? And he has to create episodes 
um, within a larger narrative. So um, Paul gets portrayed as, you know, this failed Jewish preacher, basically, who's, and he's, oh, he's persecuted by lots of Jews, right, in Acts. That's the other thing, too. I think part of it, too, is the author of Acts, the, the, the same person who wrote Acts wrote Luke. And that author constructed a narrative that's very theologically sophisticated. And <clears throat> it's likely um, the way, if you look at the two together, it almost looks like the author is trying to create a history where, you know, the Jews were in charge for a while, but they rejected the message, God's rejected them, and now we go to the Gentiles. And there's a way in which these silly stories about Paul kind of play out a larger sort of salvation history that the author of Acts sees. Can you speak just briefly to the word persecution that you use there? Because I have a, it's it's a word that's still used among Christian circles and it means a specific thing. And uh, I, if I recall correctly, when you had your talk at Brew Theology last, you spoke very briefly on persecution. I think it'd be a good note for our listeners. Paul does say that he, he persecuted the church uh, before he has his vision of the risen Jesus. Is what you know this experience he has, um, uh, and I had mentioned that the word persecute can mean everything from just chasing somebody to torturing and killing them. So it's hard to know. I seriously doubt that synagogue authorities or the priestly authorities at the time uh, were like killing Christians. In fact, the power of capital punishment, generally the Romans reserved for themselves. Um, <clears throat> the power over life and death is something that technically only Caesar has so or his emissaries. But I do think that um, they persecuted in the sense of the way lots of group you try to shut them down you use all the resources you have to make sure they don't influence other people that sort of thing we we sense like in the gospel of john the community who produced john uh there's a, some passages that sort of reflect almost like community hurt it almost seems like certain people got kicked out of the there was a synagogue and there were some people who became passionate followers of Jesus, and the rest of the synagogue basically excommunicated. So can I say something about why I think Jews, Jewish authorities, would have persecuted people who followed Jesus? I suspect that it's simply for, that it wasn't even a theological reason. That people are going around proclaiming Jesus, King of the Jews, Lord, Savior, Messiah, the new King David. These are not titles, terms, and phrases that Roman authorities wanted to hear. This would be a challenge to their authority. So Jews who really aren't interested in upsetting Roman authorities, those people who were going around saying these things about Jesus, our Lord and Savior, threatened to disrupt the whole rest of the Jewish community. So I think it was sort of like, shh, you know, you're going to get us all in trouble kind of thing. So I, yeah, hopefully that answers your question. Makes sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> right. Did other um, messianic figures in the first century not refer to themselves on such lofty 
political labels? Well, one of the questions is, is we don't know how loftily Jesus referred to himself. <laughs> um, but he certainly described that way within a, I mean, it's kind of amazing how lofty he is for Paul. And Paul's basically a contemporary of Jesus, right? But no, th so there are other messiahs, uh, you know, a few in the first century and then um, a significant one in the early second century um, named um, Bar Chokhba. And um, there was even a rabbi, Rabbi Akiba. Didn't I talk about Rabbi Akiba somewhere sometime? Yes. Okay, mm -hmm. that same Rabbi Akiba believed Bar, Bar Chokhba was the Messiah, actually. So <clears throat> I kind of forgot what the question Oh, yes. So there are false messiahs, but, or, yeah, what we, and what Jews end up calling false messiahs, and they would put Jesus in that category, I guess. Um, but generally, what they would have emphasized is their savior figures in a more human sense, liberation from Rome. You know, yes, bringing the kingdom of God, but not, not the sophisticated theological construct that Christianity comes to understand in Jesus. That, that comes hundreds of years later. Yeah, well, you know, Paul's reflections are pretty amazing, um, but, but yes, certainly official Christological yeah, yeah, right. Trinitarian creeds come much later, much later. So yeah, within your work, you have seven letters that not just you, but other people would agree upon as being the undisputed letters where if you're going to look at Paul in context, these are the ones. And I don't want you to go into full detail about all that because we've got a lot to cover. Uh, but those are, so we have Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, 1st Thessalonians, not 2nd, and then Philemon. Mm -hmm. But you're no pastoral epistles here. No women right. must, must submit to the authorities right. and be quiet women. Yeah, so this changes things. Yes, it yeah. does change things, right? It, maybe even more so than Acts. The image that you get from Paul in the pastoral epistles in particular um, makes him sound really different, right? And even in 2 Timothy is written as Paul's like last will and testament. So it's sort of summing up his thoughts and whatnot, it just doesn't sound anything like those other seven letters. Now, these are judgments that scholars make. Um, like, I have my doubts about Second Thessalonians and Colossians, right? Like, most of the letters, we make a case for being pseudonymous, partly on the ground that they, the Greek is so different and they sound so different. In the case of 2 Thessalonians, you know what the argument is? It's that it's too similar. It sounds too much like Paul, like someone's faking it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you see, I, I'm not trying to poke too much fun at my own colleagues. It's, it's more complex than that. That's not the only reason, but that is one of the reasons. So what about the, uh, the pastoral epistles is so different? Because, I mean... They're really beloved by a lot of Christians yeah. as these um, guidelines for how to live and how to practice faith and how to understand how we inter interact with the world. Um, so what about them is different from a, like a technical standpoint? In the case of the pastoral epistles, 
we have a lot of different vocabulary for one thing. Now that in and of itself, people in different contexts use different words, but people also speak in patterns. This is hard to know. And it, it, it's not, and for the most part, they don't change. It can change a little bit, but over a long period of time. If Paul's letters are all written within a 10-year period, it seems unlikely that he'd start just kind of using other phrases and stringing things together differently. The pastoral epistles use higher and more complex Greek. Paul tends to write in these almost like um, staccato-like sentences. Uh, and it it's a real distinctive style. Like you can just hear his voice. One of the unfortunate things about translation by committee is that all those words have been negotiated. And so everything kind of in the whole Bible sounds the same. (laughs) So you can't see it as well in English as you can in Greek. And so that's setting aside theology. There are also theological reasons and historical reasons. The fact that the pastoral epistles list a kind of church hierarchy, Uh um, there's sort of looks like things have begun to institutionalize. It feels like they're written quite a bit later. So that's probably the strongest reason. Frankly, actually, the strongest reason is that those three letters, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, aren't in the most important early manuscript of Paul's letters. They're just not even there. So that's what we call, you know, physical evidence that they're absent in some manuscripts. So that makes one suspicious. You had mentioned that... Like with regards to Acts, things were um, written sort of to get the feel of Paul. Like this is sort of what Paul was like, even though these things may not have exactly happened. Um, And so it makes me wonder when I'm thinking in that sort of frame of reference, um, I think you mentioned in the book or even maybe the other night um, about how um, Paul didn't necessarily pen all of these letters himself, but had scribes. And whether those scribes might have, instead of done sort of a typewriter kind of thing, might have sort of used their own language to write what Paul was saying. And therefore, differences in language like that staccato style versus whatever the opposite of that would be, um, could be ascribed to just different scribes writing down yeah. his thoughts. Yeah. Um, this said, that's an excellent question. And yes, that's why there's reason for skepticism. And generally, I call these disputed and undisputed epistles rather than authentic and inauthentic to acknowledge that this is a judgment call. Recently... Um, at least those around here know, um, I'm dabbling as a very baby beginner in Python. And um, part of my motivation was to look into using um, natural language processing to tackle the question of Pauline pseudepigraphy. And um, one of the issues that's been raised is if you have um, a secretary writing these things down, that kind of makes it a little less um, firm. It's it's a variable that you can't, you, it's pretty hard to control for. So there are some that think, no, this person is being dictated to, and we know there's enough consistency, like, I mean, you just, 
you just know the same guy wrote the Corinthian correspondence, as wrote Philippians, as wrote Galatians. You just you hear the same personality. So, but yes, it it could be that if a different secretary had a different style or thought they wanted to clean it up a little bit better, yeah, yeah, that could account for changes. So we have these different images of Paul. The variety of people have said, here's here's a Paul that I like. It's like, which Paul is the real Paul? Will he stand up? And the one that has actually come out as the, that we all know that we grew up with, especially some of us who grew up in the evangelical church, is Paul the convert. Now, you have issues with this particular Paul and that word convert specifically. So tell us what's that issue? Because for most people, this is an important issue. And you're like, no, 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 I have an issue with this yeah, word. I and do. for him as this man who's a convert. Yeah, I do. And I get why um, I, I don't think I realized how important it was to Christianity that Paul be viewed as sort of the first true convert to Christianity until a story I tell in the preface where I'm in this, I'm a visitor in this evangelical church. I don't know if you read that. It's just the preface preface. Um but I'm in an evangelical church, and there's like a testimonial there. It's Easter, and somebody gets up, and because I have Christian members in my family, my husband's family, so we're in this church, and it's time for the testimonial. I, get, I don't know a lot about how this church works, but this guy gets up, and he starts talking about what a horrible sinner he was and all this stuff. And as I say, in the, you know, I'm waiting for like the hard drinking and the, you know, bilking people out of money or whatever. And his, his sinful life is that he was Jewish. I mean, he just, go, and I'm just like, and my husband's like, do you want to leave now? And I'm like, yes, I think we should leave now. And um, it was so upsetting to me. But I think, uh, yes, so the image of Paul the convert, which is way due to acts, I think. And then it builds, I shouldn't say that. It, I actually think acts has a complex picture of Paul. He has, quote, a conversion experience, but in fact, he's a good Jew. Paul is a good Jew throughout acts. He never leaves, he brags about his Judaism. He defends himself as being a good Jew. He has one of his colleagues circumcised, Timothy, just to make sure he's, that's all kosher, because. Timothy seems to have been sort of half Jewish, and it was confusing. So Paul thinks to be on the safe side, we'll circumcise him. Um, so there's there's aspects of Acts, I want to say, that fit the portrait of Paul that I have in there. But this conversion thing, the reason it's such a problem is because that conversion is usually seen to be from Judaism to Christianity. Even though I know most people who are educated Christians know, well, you know, Christianity isn't fully formed yet. It's an outgrowth of Judaism. But but once you set up that binary between Judaism and Christianity, and then you understand Paul as seeing his conversion not to do to just like, oh, uh, this suits me in the stage I'm in life now. No, it's set up as a Judaism is a bad religion. Judaism um, doesn't doesn't recognize the grace of God and and all that kind of stuff so that it becomes the antithesis of good religion. So that 
Paul's model of conversion. That's why it's problematic for me. Yeah, and I kind of wonder just around the circle right now, how many of y'all have been through sermons growing up and even as an adult where the pastor's up there saying the only religion up there, the only one who preaches and teaches and lives out grace is Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism, uh, but, and they, they go through the list. Really? And Judaism is always the one who's like, no, they don't, you know, there's wow. no grace there until you realize Torah is a gift. Yeah. Yeah. But then, but it becomes like Jesus's anti-Torah all of a sudden. I think it know. has to do with a theology. Again, it's kind of what we've been talking about, how theology informs how the Bible's translated. But um, I think it's a theology that says that, you know, God appointed or called Paul to preach the gospel of grace, which is kind of over and against this Jewish whatever it was at right. the time. That's right. Right. So, so what word would you use? Because convert has these rippling implications and ramifications that have had drastic effects throughout history. And what word would you use for Paul? Was it an, an awakening? Was it a... Yeah, it's a great question. Because yeah. something really important happens to him. Like I always have to qualify. Like it's not as if I think that he was... He had a profound religious experience. I end up... I don't have an official word for it. I, I sometimes call it a a transformation awakening would be okay. It's a, it's um, some sort of mystical experience. I think he doesn't actually talk about it a lot in detail. I mean, in acts, we get these little details about a light and sound and that sort of stuff. But Paul, um, in one case, he doesn't describe it at all. In the other case, he just, he kind of sort of implies he saw the risen Jesus briefly, but um and I think some things are not um, available as evidence to the historian. So people's personal experience of that nature is just not something I can inquire about. So I don't even want to say I take a skeptical stance or whatever. Paul had a profound experience that changed his life. So I think we can say that. I just would stay away from the language of conversion because it usually means from one religion to another or from no religion to a religion. So you're telling us that Jesus was not a Christian too? Jesus was uh. not a Christian. <laughs> that one should oh, be man. a no-brainer. I, I yeah. certainly think people accept that more than yeah. Paul. Don't you think so? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, the Jewishness of Jesus was a bigger topic and still is versus the Jewishness of Paul. Right. Yeah. Right. But even then. Yeah. <laughs> But even but, then, say but more. But even then, well, well, you know, when you bring in the Trinity, then it gets more convoluted in the sense of how did Jesus think of himself, right? And did he believe in anything other than himself in a weird kind of way? Yeah. He prayed to himself, Dan, didn't you know? <laughs> I'm, I think that's a heresy. Dear me, I pray for that I have a good day. Can you please give me a good day? Thank yeah, you, God. I know. Thank you, me. Yeah. Uh, you know, by the way, that didn't even count as prayer in antiquity. Um, it's sort of, it, it's a petition. Yeah, sorry. No, go you there. Know, you just got to have time. Yes, please. Um, well, it's not worship, I shouldn't say. It's prayer, but it's not worship. Um, when you ask God for favors, that's not worship. That's just you asking God for favors. Um, <laughs> you know, heal my mother or whatever. Um you don't, you sing psalms, you do, you know, in antiquity, you slaughter animals and offer them as sacrifices. Petitionary prayers are sort of a different thing. Um, that becomes a later thing in religion. But 
I was going to say something. What? <laughs> That's me getting my mind blown over here. I was going to say something important and meaningful, and I've forgotten what it for was. For those of us from evangelical traditions, especially like uh, making time in your day every day to come to the Lord and ask for those things is worship of his power and capability and and if you're not like bringing that before him you're not doing your duty and you're not depending on him and you're not showing him you love him um which i i think reflects some of dan's like <laughs> amazement at this like it that um so what how would have paul have understood prayer like what was its purpose or how was it all communal? Was it individual? Yeah. Okay. So good. Okay. Okay. So Paul thinks that he has a direct experience of God, God slash Jesus, right? Let's not even try to parse that at this point. Um, so he thinks God speaks to him. Okay. So he has a very intimate experience of God, right? And other people through history have had that experience, right? Or, or claim to have that experience. So <clears throat> Paul, and I, I don't want to give the impression people do petition and pray to God for things, but the act of, that's not how you worship God. That's not how you show your allegiance. That's just you hoping that the God gives you some reward for being faithful. Um, so like if, if you look at... Um, First Corinthians, the places where Paul ends up talking about the subject of worship in some form. And so the, the, the place where you get it the most is in the Corinthian correspondence, because there seems to be a lot of conflict around it. Um, yeah. When people get together, they do things they're not supposed to. So Paul has to take up the subject, right? And he's very, very focused in, in the Eucharist um, about what people should do when they eat together and whatnot. And the words they say are words to remember Jesus. There's no mention, <laughs> really, of anything I can think of. Um, maybe the best example, and maybe this is where things begin to change, is Jesus and the Lord's Prayer, right? When he teaches people to pray. And part of that prayer is, give us this day our daily bread. That's asking God for something, right? Um, this is all people who live at a, you know, subsistence level. So literally getting bread each day, which is probably a better translation there too, but we will let that one slide. Um, uh, is something you surely do. The psalmists ask God for various things, right? Healing. Um, they, but they often ask God, why haven't you heard me? Where are you? Where did you go? Um, I have a question for you all. Can I do this? This is a little bit yeah. of a ta tangent, but it's it's related to what we're talking about right now. Okay. There is a sense. Um, I, I can't take the temperature of things right now, but when I read in historical sources about American evangelical Christianity, like late 19th, century American evangelicalism. There's some amazing stuff to read. Maybe I'll come back another time. You can invite me. This okay. is not, but this is not something I know a lot about. Let me, let me just say that. 
but I've been reading some of the debates among Christian leaders at that time when historical biblical criticism is coming about. And that's when the divide really happens. There are people who just reject modernism and others who embrace it. And that's really um, where the divide happens. One of the things that always interests me is that American evangelicals often do talk about God and convey their experience of God in very intimate ways. Like even hymns, God is with me in the garden. God is, you know, God is, uh, yeah. Father or friend or. Right, exactly. Right. Um, In Judaism, so now I'm just talking about a contemporary context, right? The sense of God being distant is much more common than God being close. The sense of God is transcendent and removed um, and mysterious versus the sense of eminence, the God of eminence. So I've wondered, is this just because Christianity had an incarnation and so God is felt and experienced and talked about that way? Or... um, because I've often went, don't some people feel <laughs> like that God isn't there sometimes? I mean, and, and I mean this for believers. As I say to my students who now, I can't tell you, probably more than 50% of them like to tell me that they're spiritual and not religious. And after hearing this for I don't know how many years, I've now decided, I realize I'm religious and not spiritual. I don't have any spirituality, really, Um, any mystical sensibilities or anything. I'm just lacking this, but religion is, my Judaism is really, really important to me, apart from how I feel at a particular moment about God. Um, So I wonder, and we can come back to whether that's rooted in texts, because it also seems to me, Paul is appealed to more in evangelical Christianity than Jesus. Mm-hmm. When I, I occasionally do subject myself to Christian radio, I just want to see what they're saying. You know, I turn it on in the car. I'm sorry. No, I turn it on in the car. 95% of the time, if I just keep it on for three minutes, if somebody's talking, if it's not some weird other kind of show, like how to do your tax, how Christians do their taxes. I mean, sometimes they have, they have like shows on Christians apparently do everything in some distinctive Christian way. Um, but assuming there's, you know, a preacher on there doing something or a Bible study, um, within three minutes, Paul will get quoted or sometimes misquoted, but quoted, appealed to something like that. You can wait a long time before Jesus gets, you know, cited. Okay. I don't know if those two things are related or not, but can I ask you all that? Well, I think with me, it kind of leads to um, the crucifixion kind of deal to where it talks about how the veil was torn um, and that that, that veil kind of separated every, everyone except the priests from going into the room and the Ark of the Covenant and everything like that. And when that veil was torn, that separation basically became null and void from what I was brought up in. Um, so that's where I, that's to me where it comes from was since that veil was removed, God can come to us or we can go to God and it becomes better. Yeah, I would agree. Great sermons on that too out there, by the way. You could probably Google them right now. Yeah. Also, I think the idea of 
Um, and this is, it's, it is interesting because I hear you talking about how, how much evangelical Christians really seem to almost appeal to Paul more than Jesus. But this is one area where I feel like growing up, evangelical Christians appealed more to Jesus in that idea of that like intimate relationship with God of, you know, calling God Abba and, you know, um, some of, even some of the ways that Jesus would pray um, or was recorded to have prayed. Was it a sort of imitatio Christi, like I should live a Christ-like yes. life? So for, okay. for me, I would say what continually is coming to mind is the concept of the fruit of the Spirit. So coming from a pretty legalistic tradition, like Paul gives us the rules. Mm-hmm. So he he outlays he out lays out the rules for everything. He lays out the rules for how I should be. He lays out the rules for what I shouldn't be, what I shouldn't participate in. He lays out the rules for the leaders, what church should be like. And so I think those um, documents became I don't know secondary to my church manual yeah. because Paul is telling you exactly what you need to do to be a good Christian. And right. so it becomes very personal. And you, you asked, you know, do, do Christians ever feel that God is far away? Well, yeah, but that's my fault because if I feel God is far away, then I'm failing and I'm probably sinning oh, it's and I'm not okay. attuned to what God is doing around me. And so I need to fix that because if I don't hear God, because I'm being disobedient, that's my fault. And so it's very much used to as a control mechanism of, you know, this, your life should be gold star days where you <laughs> feel good, where things are rocking and rolling, where you know what God has called you to and what he's leading you to. And if you don't feel those things, then something's wrong with you. Could be very deeply. Either original sin is wreaking havoc or you're committing intentional sin or you've just lost the plot completely and you're being disobedient and not listening. And so it's just this cycle that when things are good, that's good. Don't, don't you dare be proud of them because they're not yeah. about you. <laughs> they're about God's blessing on you. But right. if things are bad, that's all your fault. So you can never take any of the credit, but you get to never. take all the blame. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's a tough, but way a to lot grow of, up. even a lot of what you were saying really is, um, grounded in that what you talked about a little bit before and i'm curious about current jewish thought as well as jewish thought in paul's day um about the idea between individualistic religion versus corporate religion yeah. this idea of you know especially in western culture we're very much about like this idea that god cares equally about every single individual person. And yet sometimes when I look in, you know, what, um, what I think in Jewish religion is called the Hebrew Bible, it seems that God doesn't care really individually about <laughs> specific people more. I mean, you know, I think of some of the, some of the kind of horrific things like, like people who are in the extended same family of someone who did something wrong were also ordered by God to be, you know. Right, 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 right. I Yes, there is definitely, there are some prayers you are not allowed to say 
unless there are 10 people, 10 Jews present. It used to be 10 Jewish men, and in Jewish Orthodox circles, that's still the case. Um, but um, it, it's always, to, to make a point, you end up overstating a case sometimes. So both, so if we're talking about contemporary Judaism and Christianity, I think they're, they're both informed, whether we like it or not, um, it, it, by Enlightenment values as well as capitalist values and sort of where the individual and, you know, finding our own call and our own thing and achieving our own way is very much part of our culture. So I think if you, if, if we had, you know, a representative body of, of devout Jews here, they, you know, many of them would also talk about their individual relationship with God and that sort of thing. But I hear that language, like, even the language of my relationship with God, it's much rarer for me to hear a Jewish person use those words, whereas I hear that that that's probably the most common way that a Christian student, and this would be true of a mainline student or evangelical, would talk about. It's a relationship between me, me, and God, whereas I think Judaism understands itself as the relationship between a people and a God. A lot of evangelical Christianity, uh, the evangelism that occurs is about creating a personal relationship. I mean, those, right, right. that language that personal, is very right. used. Yeah, right, right. So I, I grew up in a charismatic tradition, actually very close to what kind of Janelle grew up with. Can you so, name what it is? is it, well, I grew up... <laughs> It's weird the the phenomenon of non-denominational churches in America that are charismatic as in they believe that God's spirit is active in the world and that manifests itself through whatever spiritual gifts as sophisticated as healing or something like that to as um you know being able to serve in the church and and teach or something like that. Mm-hmm. So growing up in that way I was very close to what Janelle's experience was where if you feel that distance from God, it's a personal problem. Since it's a personal relationship with this God, God's there. If you don't feel him, that's your problem, you know, and, and it's, it can be harmful. And I think most of the time it is, um, because it's just a cycle of shame. Like you said, um, when you're not feeling, even when you're feeling good with your relationship with God, you can't feel too good about it because then that's pride and that's a sin and it's a sin. You're in the cycle of sin. Yeah. And I think where Paul comes into this is his lang- I think it is his language of um, him describing God or relating to God through Jesus. Um, and he uses the, the Greek poets in him. We, we move and, and live and have our, our being. being. Mm-hmm. So it's like this very existential, you know, it just is this isness, and then you, on top of that, you have the the prologue to the book of John, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? So it's like all all this New Testament theology kind of combining to make a very personal, and of course, it comes from the West, so it it's particularly individualistic, yeah, right? Whereas Judaism maybe has more of a communal feel to it. Yeah. You know, um, one interesting thing about Paul is that Paul never calls himself a sinner 
right? So Paul's the model convert in some ways, but so let's not try to do a whole sweep of Christian history here, but in, in just contemporary American evangelical Christianity, um, it's a conversion is usually not just people sort of get reconverted. It's my understanding, right? You can have been a Christian all your life and then have some sort of, I, I don't quite understand how this works, so I don't have the right words, but um, where you sort of, you recommit. You don't necessarily get rebaptized, right? But you, you sort of relive that conversion and then you, you're rededicating yourself to God and you recognize your sinful self before. You know, the word forgiveness doesn't appear in Paul's letters, which is interesting. And the word, and he, he only calls non-Jews sinful. <laughs> you know, this gets back to where it's almost embarrassing to me how condescending he can be toward non-Jews. Uh, but he, um, you, you all know here, since you're all good evangelicals, the great thing about, I love talking to evangelicals because they all know their Bible, so it's just Former. great. Former. Okay, sorry, ex-evangelical. Hey, okay. let's just use the word post. I, That's the trendy post. word. Okay. Can, I, I would love you, you anyway, right? Um, uh, okay, I just forgot what I was going to say. Oh, when Paul says, you know, Paul had this thorn in the flesh, mysterious. Uh, people often ask me, you know, Ooh, what he had. There's because all we all, you know, we all probably hear our theories. That could be fun. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> can we not? Can we do this? No, let's, awesome. let's, let's actually, let's do this. Let's do this right now. And okay, if we want to edit it out, point, we, we As can long do as it. I get to come back to the point, I we're going to get make. to the point. So real quick, don't go into like your whole thing. What's, what's that thorn? Blindness. His mother-in-law? <laughs> no, I, I would say just his own personal sin. So I've heard, quote, homosexuality. Yeah. I'll second that. Mine is that he couldn't figure out which group he was a part of because he was you know, Jew-Gentile. <laughs> and, oh, my goodness, this awakening. So he was He was he a was Gentile torn. with a J. So it's... With a J? Gentile. Maybe you could put a Y-L-E-S at the end, too. Um, uh, we don't know. We have no idea. Blindness has been proposed because he says he can't see very well elsewhere, right? Um, so, But now that I'm in my 50s, I can't see nearly as well as I could either. So that happens to so many people then, right? Um, I have no idea, but I often, when I think, <laughs> I, I take the metaphor semi-literally, and I think, you know, gastrointestinal distress and ulcer, um, something, yeah, it could be anything. But, okay, the point, though, is it, whatever it was, it held him up, right? He mentions this at a point where he's sort of making an excuse for why he hasn't visited the congregation, you know, it's sort of those, I've been meaning to get there, that sort of thing. And um, Or I, I met these people because I, you know, I couldn't go any further because of my thorn in the flesh. He does, you know, ponder, does, did God do this to me? But he doesn't think if God did it to him that he did it to punish him, but rather because he wanted to slow him down because there were people to evangelize because something good was going to happen. And um, he wanted to sort of redirect Paul in his mission. 
But it's really interesting with Paul, who obviously thinks he has a very personal relationship with God, does not really blame himself when things go wrong. Because he wasn't an evangelical. That's right. Thank you. Okay. True. True. Or um, a Christian. <laughs> he was a Gentile. A Gentile, right. Free Theology listeners, that was part one with Dr. Pam Eisenbaum. We've got more coming your way straight from the Brew Theology headquarters. Make sure you like this. Go to iTunes. Share that good stuff. You know, we can always use some love on social media. Twitter, Brew underscore Theology. Facebook and Instagram, at Brew Theology. And don't forget, everybody, share that Havalicious Brew. Peace.